Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I mean, we're all different, but there shouldn't be artificial barriers. And so to the extent to which one can reduce artificial barriers so that a human being has an opportunity to experience whatever they have the capacity to experience, seems to me we'd all be better off. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is the Honorable Carol Bellamy, Class of 68, Chair of the Global Community Engagement and Resilience Fund. I just love that word resilience, by the way. I am happy to welcome Carol to the podcast today. Thank you very much. Because this podcast is oriented around women, I always like to start with this question. Tell me first about your experience in law school. I'm not sure I remember much of it. (laughs) I I remember I liked it. Um, I literally stepped into my first class in law school literally two weeks after I had returned from two years in the jungles of Guatemala as a Peace Corps volunteer. So it was, I don't know that I was ready for anything. In 1968, when I, in 1965, I should say, when I started, the law school had a requirement that you had to dress like a lawyer. I have no idea what that meant, but we all had to, men, the guys were in suits and we were in whatever it was. Little skinny black ties. Yeah, I call it nuns of the law, frankly, with those little ties. Uh, by the end of that year, we didn't. Uh, they allowed us to dress. We, you had to dress decently, but uh, we were no longer having to wear monkey outfits. Uh, I went to law school, I think, because I wanted to save the world, but I got to law school, and my two favorite courses were corporations and contracts. So it, uh, I like constitutional law, too, I must say. Worked hard the first year. I don't remember second and third because mostly I was outside working to pay. My first year, I had some money from the school, uh, but I also had to make up some of the uh, tuition as well. So I worked a whole bunch of jobs. The one I remember the most was I was a telephone operator for a, a law firm. And in those days, you still had to plug the thing into the wall, into the set. And I'd have to, I'd have to do the name. Kronischlieb, Shane Sweetwiener, and Hellman, may I help you? Um, so it was, I learned a lot from them, even though I was a telephone operator. I was on the annual survey of American law. I remember enjoying that. And and with a couple of friends, I guess I was still, in those days, still thinking about the international part of me, which kind of went away for 25 years and then has come back for the last 25 years. But uh, we started the Journal of International Law and Politics. Anyway, I loved my law school years, even though I can barely remember. I lived couple blocks away, uh, just on Thompson off of Bleecker, where in 1965, on that corner, there was still a live chicken market, because you could hear the chickens crowing each morning, <laughs> or the roosters crowing. I guess chickens don't crow. That does not happen anymore. I, I think it's changed a little. I can bear witness to that. But your corporations and contracts teachers would probably still tell you, you know, you probably can change the world through corporations and contracts. Indeed, I think you can. I mean, I, uh, I, I'm a big believer of of using every tool you can find to try and make the changes you can make. No, no, it's worked out. I've I've spent almost 13 years in the private sector and the rest of my uh, adult life in the public sector. I'm a, everybody should make their own choices, but I'm a big believer in not doing the same thing over and over again and, and, and having diversity. In your professional life? Actually, in everything, but in my, certainly in my professional life. How has being a woman impacted your life professionally? 
That's a very com- that's a simple question with a complicated answer. Well, things have changed for women, although there the issues around gender are still so real and so upfront and so in your face everywhere. Different from the '60s when I was coming of age, I guess, and '60s and '70s. Law school. Well, NYU has always been a bit in the lead. We, I think, went from the year before me, there were 15 women out of uh, 300, uh, and we were, or there were 10 women, and then we were something like 20 women. By the way, that was another thing I remember from law school. We had the most extraordinary women in our class. Uh, it, It was a great group of women. But other than in those days, Ruth Tilden was only for guys. Uh, I mean, you could be the best, the most brilliant, the top student ever from whatever region you were. But if you were a woman, you you were not eligible for Tilden. That's changed. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a lot more in terms of um, particular challenging gender issues in law school. Uh, yes, I do. One, there was one, one professor who would never call on women. Uh, I believe that was our property professor. I don't think they call it property anymore, but <laughs> now they have f- fancy names. I went to, I actually, when I finished law school, I was lucky enough, in my view, to go to a, a big firm on Wall Street, Crevasse, Wayne and Moore, and um, I had really the two best bosses almost in my entire life. Um, very different to people, but uh, terrific bosses. My first one had two daughters. I think that might have made a difference, but um, they, they were great. That being said, I remember one day uh, my boss sent me to take uh, clients to lunch in the Wall Street Club up in one Chase Manhattan Plaza, which is where Cravath was when I worked with them. And um, there was, in those days, in in those clubs, women were not admitted, but there was one room at lunchtime where women could uh, to take lunch. Not only women alone, but women were admitted. But that day it was full, so they turned me away with my our clients. So I, I remember that as a something that reminded me... Um, when I was working in city government and introduced the law to open private clubs to women and others. Um, we still, we have you to thank for that. Uh, and a couple other people. But yes, uh, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it, it, you still had to meet certain standards, but you shouldn't be excluded simply because of your religion or simply because of your race or simply because of your gender. When I ran for public office again, I ran with a colleague, a young male colleague who was running for the state assembly. I was running for the state senate. They would say to him, it's great to see young blood like you running. And they'd say to me, why aren't you home taking care of your children? So it was a a little bit of a challenge, but I was elected. So, um, uh, you know, people were willing to pull the lever. What did you answer when somebody asked you that question? Um... First, I didn't have any children, but that's not what I answered. I, I said that, um, uh, you know, I appreciate their concern, but uh, I have every right to be out here running. Um, you want to hear what my views are? In those days, occasionally, you could tell people what your views were. Today, you just spend the entire time just raising money. But um, in any case, we, we we ran as a team, and we were a good team together. I mean, ran as a, a team for election, so it worked out well. It's interesting that I hear that question still is being asked occasionally in subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways. Well, I don't know whether that's asked as much, but I'll tell you one other thing that happened once I was elected is that, and it didn't happen by everyone, and this is really too much broad brushing, but just kind of snippets, there would be this assumption 
I was elected to the state Senate, and frankly, there had been no women in the state Senate for many, many years, and I think there'd only been one in the past. But the year I was elected, 1972, two others were elected, um, one of whom became, well, they both became friends, but one became a very close friend. But our colleagues, many of our Men, all the male colleagues would assume that we would want to speak on things that were considered to be women's things. Mm-hmm. So, if childcare came up or uh, school-related types of things, but n- perhaps not education financing because that might be a little too difficult for us. But school-related types of things, and I used to say, "Hey, I want to talk about insurance, and I want to talk about transportation." I probably don't know much more than you know, and you may not know very much, but what makes you think you could talk about it and I can't talk about it? So this assumption that women could talk about so-called soft things, many of the things that have always been declared to be soft things are not at all soft. They may be some of the most incredibly challenging things possible, but this this box that you tended to be put in because you were a woman and um, engaged in some kind of debate... The women's issues, as we call them. The women's issues. Well, that goes back to your the most memorable courses that you were describing were corporations and contracts, neither of which are considered women's classes sometimes. Well, not in the past. I hope they're considered as much women's classes today as, uh, as whatever else is, uh, they we teach. Them. We claim them. We absolutely claim them. Um, did you know that you wanted to go to law school before you went to the Peace Corps in Guatemala? Oh, no, no, no. I... Um, no, I, uh, again, only old people will understand this, but in, those, in the 60s, you know, women, I was the first in my family to go, go to college, and you kind of, there were certain things you could become. I mean, of course, you could become other things, but it was kind of, you became a teacher, if you're a woman, a teacher, or a social worker, or a librarian, or a nurse. My mother was a nurse, an incredible nurse, so I already ruled that out. I could never be as good as she was. And so it was kind of thinking about the other things. And so I had planned to go to social work school, but I got stuck in the library late one night and discovered these Peace Corps pamphlets. Peace Corps was just starting. I was in early Peace Corps before anybody had actually come back. And so I joined the Peace Corps. And when I was at the Peace Corps, I really liked the kind of work. And I thought, maybe I want to work for the government. How do I get a job? working for the government. I think you have to be a lawyer. I said this to myself. I had never known a lawyer in my life. I knew nothing about the law. But it was when I was at the Peace Corps thinking, you need to be a lawyer to get a government job. That is not true. But there I am off in the middle of nowhere in the beautiful country of Guatemala. And so that's where I decided to go to law school. I applied to a number of schools, including NYU. One school in California kept writing me, dear foreign student, and I kept saying, no, 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 I'm an American, but I want to go to school. Anyway, I, I was admitted to NYU, which was my number one choice, and um, given some scholarship money, and the rest is whatever the rest is. Sounds like a beautiful extrapolation. I love it. I, I like the idea of um, finding a cause. I think sometimes those life-shaping moments of finding a cause do, in fact, become so critical. You seem to land on girls' education. Well, I have in more recent years. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think one goes... Well, for me, I didn't go out to find a cause. I think you have to be generally happy in what you're doing, whatever you're doing. And, uh, but I've always, I've always wanted to do things in addition to whatever, whatever I was doing professionally. I mean, even when I started out 
in law as a junior associate at Cravath. I joined with, I think we were 11 others, all at large firms. We were all in our first, second, or second year as totally junior law associates. But we created the Council of New York Law Associates, which is today called the Lawyers Alliance. It's still around. It's the largest pro bono, non-government legal assistance in New York City. So here we were saving corporate America during the day and into the night. And then we'd kind of go out and try and help tenants or other people with problems. And so I've always wanted to try and help a little bit in some other things. I think I got that from my mother. So children, I suppose, have always been a part or uh, of the things I focused on, not alone, but coming back into international work, um, which was really about 25 years, not until the mid-90s. And uh, it's not the only thing I focused on, but it just increasingly the challenge of assuring that every, every young person everywhere got an education, which meant girls as well as boys, not that boys are getting an education everywhere, but girls have always been behind. Just the opportunities or the possibilities for that girl just having just a minimum amount of education are so much greater than if she doesn't have an education for herself, for her children, for her family, and for her community. There's a little thread, if you follow it through your career, of that notion that people deserve a place at the table. I do. I believe we're all, we all should have an opportunity to to excel in whatever we're able to excel at. I mean, we're all different, so we're not all going to be the same. We're not, we don't all have to love each other, but there shouldn't be artificial barriers. And so to the extent to which one can reduce artificial barriers so that a human being has an opportunity to, to, to experience whatever they have the capacity to experience, seems to me we'd all be better off. I don't think that I could find that sense of the, of the little thread until I looked back on my life. Looking back on my professional career, I hope it's not done, but when I look back, then I can kind of see, oh, there is some commonality, there is some sort of theme. And that's what I mean when I say that you have some detectable cause or mission or sense of yourself when I look at your um, life on paper, if you will. Even that word resilience shows up even in theme for you in the sense of diversity. Well, again, I hope so. I mean, I, I think we all have, uh, I also think we all have a responsibility to, to the extent to which we have opportunities and are successful or some degree of success, whatever that means. I mean, we all define it differently. But to the extent to which we can reach out and I, I used to say, if you're, if you're supposedly climbing the ladder of success, make sure that you keep turning around and help the person behind you, not, not just looking uh, what's forward. So, again, and I've had opportunities. Uh, serving in public office gave me opportunities to, particularly when I was in city government, president of city council. First of all, I, I worked with the most incredible team, and we we fought for better foster care. We fought for better transportation. We, we got kids immunized who hadn't been immunized. And, um, and when, you're giving, when you're giving these opportunities, you got to take advantage of them. So that's my belief. Walk through the door when it's open. Yes. Right, or, or crawl through the window if it's just open a little bit. You know, <laughs> I mean, you just can't wait for something to open the door. Sometimes you have to push it a little bit. You strike me, um, and I always think this about you, so forgive me for putting this on you if you're going to tell me, Jeannie, this isn't, this isn't the right word, but you strike me as 
someone who's full of grit. This is kind of a hip, sexy word right now, this notion of grit. But talk to me a little bit about grit. What does that mean to you? Gosh, I don't know. I've, I don't know that I've thought of the word. Um, a bit of strength. Gosh, I don't know what it means. I mean, I, I, I don't mean strength like being tough. I mean, you can, one can be tough. Sometimes you have to be tough. For example, I like management issues, and so you've got to make decisions, but it doesn't mean that you don't listen to others. In fact, I think it's critical that you listen to others, but you've got to be tough enough to, to make decisions. Grit, uh, integrity, uh, willing to take on difficult things. Um, well, that's actually one of the, <laughs> willing to fail, too. I mean, I always say that for me, being a Peace Corps volunteer so many years ago was one of the most important things I ever did because I learned to be successful in a couple little projects, but I also learned to fail. And I think learning to fail and not be deterred, you may have to figure out another way around, but learning to fail, I think, is a very important thing because we all fail at some things. We don't want to fail at everything, but not everything goes perfectly. And so not having, being prepared to make a mistake sometimes, um, I think one has to accept that because if you're not occasionally making a mistake, you're just not doing anything. Could you tell me about a mistake you've made? Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> uh, let's see, many, but um, uh, uh, many years ago now, this is so long ago, but I've run for election many times and mostly won. Uh, I've lost twice. Once I lost, I think you can lose well, and I think you can lose badly. So uh, my first time I lost, I lost badly, and that was a mistake. I, I, if you've been number two, you want to be number one. So I was number two in New York City, and I decided, hmm, it's time to be number one. So I ran for mayor in 1985 and came in number two, <laughs> and there's no silver in elections. Uh, the other race, when I lost, but I, I, I found my mojo, if, as they say, and ran a good race. So that was a mistake. Um, you know, you know, I've made mistakes in in choosing staff members as part of teams. That's a mistake in the sense of it was the wrong fit. It's not that that is a bad person, but it's a wrong fit, and so you you have to face up to it and take responsibility mm-hmm. for it. You know, I've dropped the ball on things, and I probably have not treated some people as appropriately as I should have treated people sometimes. Um, I'm. I, I tend to be impatient, and I wish I was less impatient. So, so I probably made mistakes sometimes because I'm a bit impatient. I recently was telling someone that I made a hiring decision where I realized that I wanted to hide under my desk every time I saw this guy coming. And I realized that if I felt like that, probably everybody on the entire team felt like that, and that I had made this fatal error in hiring him, and I had to address it. And I was mortified when I realized that. And I was also mortified because I, you know, obviously had to clean that up. And those, those decisions, those choices are, in fact, a little horrifying because they're the kinds of things that, you know, keep me up at night in a, in a little pile. But they're also the kinds of things that grow us up. Right. Yeah. You've got to make choices. And sometimes it's the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. You also have this incredible reputation of being able to speak truth to power. You speak up in a really brave, courageous way. What gives you the guts to do that? I've been lucky enough to be in in an, 
a couple of positions uh, where I, I had the opportunity to, where I had a little bit of a, a teeny bit of a soapbox. Um, certainly the time when I served as president of the Council of New York City, uh, I would say that was one, when I was um, the director of UNICEF, um, uh, the UN's Children's Agency, that was another and in both cases, I will tell you, I work with the most extraordinary teams. And so when speaking up, you have to have some comfort that what you are what you are saying or the position you're taking or what you are advocating, there is value and merit to it. And I, I probably had occasionally, but really didn't have second thoughts given the people that I was working with and, and the fact that this was the view that we should go forward in particular areas. And I, I happened to be the one who could make the make the statement or make the challenge or say we're going to do it this way rather than that way. Um, but you, you don't do that alone. You don't do that in a vacuum in most cases. I'm sorry, some people may do it in vacuum who are really famous and whatever. But you do it as part of, really as part of a team. And I've just, I've really been lucky to work with fantastic people. It gives me strength. Mm-hmm. You consult and make the choices? Yeah, I consult, and, and as I said, one has to ultimately make choices but, and make decisions, but um, valuing the opinions of the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. Um, what's the soundest piece of advice that anybody's ever given you? <laughs> when I was quite young, my mother, um, my mother was a nurse, as I said, and she... By the way, I, I actually am quite appealed to by your references to your mom. My mom was a nurse also. And there's something about moms who are nurses because they're both very practical. Oh, very. Tough as nails. Very tough. I mean, they do have to clean up poop, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, in the best way. but In the best way. And incredibly caring. So my mother said to me many, many years ago, but it just, it's something that has influenced my life, I think. She said, you know, if you just cut down a little bit in the skin mm-hmm. of any human being, we all look alike. Mm-hmm. You just have to go a little bit below mm-hmm. that cover. We all look alike. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I have never forgotten it. That's very moving. Yeah. Yeah. So... Words of the ages. <laughs> yes. And my mother, I mean, you know, my mother just, she, you know, was no uh, no big intellectual. She got up each morning, went to work at the hospital, um, brought those little babies. She was uh, she was head nurse on OBGYN for a while. So mm-hmm. everybody loved my mother in, in the community because, <laughs> because they had babies and she was there. Mm-hmm. Deliver, delivered the world. That's right. Mm-hmm. I like to end the podcast with this question. What advice would you give yourself when you look back on you, uh, your start to your career in law school? Your baby law yourself. What advice would you give yourself? Never be afraid to try something different. I mean, be open to new challenges. Don't do the same thing over and over again. Um, Push yourself, stretch yourself, and find great people to work with. What would she say if she could see you now? My mom? (laughs) Well, her too. She'd say, you never call me enough. That's what she used to always say. What would your baby lawyer self say to you now? 
I don't know. I, I really don't know how I managed to <laughs> get uh, admitted to NYU Law School from the northernmost part of Guatemala in 1964, or, uh, but it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made. It sounds like that she'd be really proud of you. I hope she would, yeah. Both your mom and your little lawyer self, your law student self. I don't know whether she would, but hopefully my mom would. Thank you for doing this, Carol. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership.com.